Guys, I'm really into things that add more convenience to my life. It's even better when it also comes with safety in a high quality package. I'm talking about my Eufy Video Lock. I'm still loving this thing. I love this thing so much that I'd like to invest in the company. I am so impressed with this product that I'm willing to back it. And if anyone out there knows how I can do it, please reach out. You gotta check it out for yourself. I'll probably do a quick social post, but for now, just search UV Video Lock. Do it online. It's a three-in-one smart lock, 2K camera with an audio and doorbell. It's easy to install. It has fingerprint recognition, so I don't even have to remember a code. I can control it all in an app, which again, the convenience is such a big plus for me. We are always on the go, and being able to monitor our home on the road is such a nice option. Not only that, I don't have to rush to the door if the doorbell rings. I can either open the door or ignore whoever's at the door by vetting them through the app. There is no monthly fees for security video storage. The battery is rechargeable, and each charge lasts about four months. This UV lock is fantastic, and I highly recommend it. Search Eufy Video Lock online. That's Eufy, E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com backslash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your front door. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, guys, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly on to you. I haven't skipped a beat using Mint Mobile services. I have a great service even when I'm traveling for over less than 70% of what I was paying before. Listen to Uncle Chael and say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and Bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash chael. That's mintmobile.com slash chael. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash chael. $45 upfront payment required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. He doesn't want to fight the backup 70-pounder. He wants to leave the division against an unknown opponent in a fight that's yet to even take place. Because he thinks it would be massive. Stay by your phone. In the future, we'll call you with ideas. Save the thinking for the smart people. What's happening guys? Happy Friday! 
thank you for joining another special episode of your welcome guys we got so much more ufc 295 fallout i'm gonna get to that today plus i'm gonna tell you about this lawyer i've been dealing with on twitter patty the batty has also spoken up about his upcoming fight with Tony Ferguson, and I'm also gonna tell you why Francis Ngannou left the UFC at the perfect time. Guys, we got a lot to unpack today. Let's begin here. Joe Rogan, head commentator for UFC. He used to do the man show with Jimmy Kimmel. And Joe Rogan started a podcast called the Joe Rogan Program. It's huge. It's like three hours an episode. It's very, very meaningful. I've done it before. It's a lot of fun, and it gets a lot of views. If you want uncomfortableness, okay? Did you ever watch The Office? The, the Office is one of my favorite shows ever. For sure a top three. My mother couldn't watch it. Because one thing that The Office did that was its humor is they would create awkward, cringeworthy moments cringeworthy, if you guys are fight fans, something they assigned to Henry Cejudo, the king of cringe. Cringe is actually a relatively new term. When I was in high school, nobody ever used the word cringe to describe something that was awkward, just to understand for you. Like, that's a fairly new phenomenon, particularly in theater, particularly by doing by design. People try to avoid those kinds of moments. It creates an anxiety for most. NBC made one of the great shows ever based on it. My mom couldn't watch it. It made her uncomfortable, even though that she knew it was a theatric. I say that to you because if you're into that kind of thing, you can go for three hours to the Joe Rogan program right now and watch Rogan and The Rock face-to-face pretending to be happy for the other one's success. This was amongst... and You got a top actor in Hollywood, right? But you will wonder at times... And you'll know this from your own life. You'll you'll know this through history. The highest paid actor or the most sought after actor isn't always the best actor, right? There's some people that are actors, thespians, and there's some people that are in movies. I did a movie and I had people saying that to me. Hey, man, hey, yeah, you're an actor now. Hey, you're an actor. No, I'm not. I'm not an actor. No, I'm a gangster. But I'm in a movie. And there's a meaningful difference. And I think it's helpful if you can identify which one you are. Like if you were to talk about probably the best thespian out there right now is Daniel Day-Lewis, probably. And most of you, if you're curious who I just said, are Googling him right now. When he pops up, you might recognize him and you might not. Some of you saw Let There Be Oil and some of you didn't. Right, not for nothing. And then if it's not Daniel Day-Lewis, it's my, my personal pick is Edward Norton. And Edward Norton is recognized, and he's very well paid, but they don't always go hand in hand, and either way, those guys together can't draw like The Rock, and that doesn't mean The Rock is better, but it's very relevant, it's really relevant to what I'm talking about, because Joe Rogan is also a performer, but he's not Daniel Day-Lewis, he's not going to go and get a script and be able to do it. The acting that went on, I mean, they tried, right, the story is told in your eyes, you ever hear that from somebody, they smile, they smile with their eyes. But it's true. And these two are going through the mannerism. They're going the back of me. If they would have stood it and get the bro hug and come over the top with it. This was the phoniest bull that I have seen in my time of watching digital entertainment. And I, I wish they would have just ripped it off. I wish they would have just gone for it. Straight up head to head. And the world would have liked to know as, as well 
Rock, why are you here? And one thing about Joe Rogan, he's very humble. It might surprise you. Joe does not know and or brag and or act as though, take it from me and do like me and I should be all of your idols. Everybody in comedy, I'm funnier and sell more tickets. He's not like that. Everybody in podcasting, I do it better than I did it first. I made more money. He's not like that. In fact, he'll tell you the opposite. Hey, don't just... I don't know anything about business. I got good people around me. And boom, he moves right on to the next thing. He's just a very humble guy. And I say that because I wish he would ask a lot of the guests of the Joe Rogan program, why are you here? Some of them are obviously selling something. Most are seeking attention. That makes sense. There's there's nothing wrong here. But when you have a guy like Elon Musk would be a great example. Or when you have a guy like The Rock, you start to figure out Elon Musk. And we go, okay, but you, you know, you live up the road. We all read that you left California, came here. That's actually the same thing I did, and we're in the same town. The Rock, why is he there? Just why, why did he go to Texas? Was he doing something else and he swung by and the schedule's aligned? And Joe Rogan, despite his disdain, and The Rock, despite his disdain, and the elephant in the room that we all know is there that's never going to be discussed, like in spite of all of that, is it easier to just pretend, or was there something else going on? There's a rumor, rumor, speculation, that The Rock is considering running for Joe Biden's spot. Now, why would he go to Texas? If he was already there and do something, we're all cool in the gang. Great answer. But for the biggest star in Hollywood that can get on any medium that he wants, why? Why that one? I get how big it is, but you're still not convincing me. He's going to catch a private jet out to Texas to drive to the spaceship to sit down with a guy that he doesn't like and who doesn't like him. You're, you're just not going to convince me. And then the one thing that they actually have to discuss that anybody would give a goddamn about, they don't. They didn't even touch it. And you're just not going to convince me that was above board as much as those two guys wanted to pretend. Does that lean to the idea that The Rock's on a media tour? He was in Washington, D.C. only hours before that. He was asked point blank, are you running? And he did not say no. And the only reason that that's relevant is it was speculated in 2016 that The Rock was going to run. Now, The Rock would have run. Uh, I apologize. He would have won in 2016. Nobody knew what his positions are. Nope, nobody understood anything like that. But The Rock is the coolest guy of my lifetime. And that's not a word that you get to use very often. And that's, that's largely kind of based on what school district you went to. In my school district here in Westland, I can tell you, the good people of Wood Middle School stopped using the word cool somewhere around the eighth grade. By high school, it was long gone. Everybody was cool. Everybody could find a group or a fashion, and then those guys thought they were cool, and they could go, go do their own thing, right? Fill up a car and go have a great time on a Saturday night. But The Rock, for whatever that word is, is the coolest guy of my lifetime. And I do think it's very interesting because in 2016, with this started, he was flattered. I think he was stunned. Oh my God, people like me this much. I've never stated a view. You guys like me this much. And the answer was yes, he would have won in 2016. He would have won in a landslide. But when it started coming out that he was leaning left, the left will eat their own. And they came after him instantly. And they let him know right away, do not faint this. Do not faint it. Do not pretend it. Here's what will happen. And he backed down quickly. And that piece of history is very relevant because Joe Rogan had three hours to ask him the one thing that he wanted to ask him and either make him wilt or not. And they didn't talk about it. 
and they pretended. You had two actors pretending. <laughs> oh my God, it was so, it was so awkward. But why was he there? And no matter how mad you were at a guy, if that guy is one decision away from possibly being the president, you let him on your show. Now, this is a hell of a speculation by me. I don't have anything on it. I just don't know what he was doing. I don't know what The Rock was doing there. And one thing that I do like about The Rock, look, he's a storyteller. He gets some room. But The Rock has had a cool enough life. He's got, uh, he's got cool enough actual stories that he doesn't quickly default into kayfabe and storytelling. He's got enough hot things going on right now. Like, like if you saw Hulk Hogan on the Joe Rogan program, Hulk was making up story after story after story. And there's no problem. He'll never get called a lot. He's a worker. He's been telling stories from the time he slammed the giant and dropped that leg on him and covered him for the one, two, the right. He's been telling stories. They, j they got pretty weird. He hit up Vince McMahon's attic for two weeks until Randy Savage called the FBI on him. They got weird. And he didn't have a lot going on, though. There, there would be reasons that you could point to if you were in his position that you're going to use an opportunity to get as many headlines as you can. The Rock had a story that he was considering going into Pride. And the year would have been 1997. Now, people can get years wrong. People can get facts wrong. It is very easy that I would have could have told you guys that I was trying to get into Pride in 1997. I would know what I'm talking about. I didn't have other options. I didn't have other things to do. And I could have got the years wrong. So The Rock said that he tried to do it in 99, and that was the problem. Or 97, rather. And, and that turns out to be the problem. Pride wasn't around. But that doesn't mean he couldn't have misspoken. He's got 20 other things going on. But it would have been the perfect opportunity to talk about you wanted to get into MMA and to talk about that you were going into Pride and that your two guys were Kerr and Shamrock when you are a blatant steroid abuser and you're sitting there juiced out of your mind. You're going to go to the one organization where you... It would have been a great time for Joe Rogan to give him the bump back. But he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He sat there like a limp noodle on his own show. He sat there like a limp noodle. He pretended that he didn't have disdain. He pretended he was happy for this guy. Pretended he wanted to hear his story. Pretended he thought he was going to go fight in pride. Pretended for almost three hours. And The Rock pretended back. And they weren't selling Teslas and they weren't smoking dope. They weren't tickling each other's nuts and listening to the band out back and going to the big and hitting the punching machine. They weren't doing any of this stupid stuff. So I, it was one of these things. It's one of these things. Does that lend towards the rock is considered a run? It's one of those things, right? You want to be uncomfortable for two hours and 44 minutes? Go watch The Rock on the Joe Rogan program. This is a question I got asked, and I want to answer this for you guys publicly. I want a story told the way the story happened. Everybody's got a thing, right? You got your thing, but that's my thing. It's got to be told accurately. Now, I actually took a course in college. This is what influenced me, and I was supposed to write a paper about how the Indians 
had discovered America, I apologize, when we came to America that the Indians were already here, I was supposed to write a paper on this, so I did, and I wrote about how this helicopter, and it brought them in, it, it wasn't true, it wasn't supposed to be, it was supposed to be an idea, I went to the teacher's office hours, and this was one of my, my tricks throughout college, I, I could not get anything less than an A, even if it'd be an A-, minus, because I would always go to the office hours, always, I'd never miss, I'd say, here's what I'm about to turn in, what do you think? They're now on a spot to tell me, and I would take those notes, and I would go change it, and then I would turn it in the way they told me that I should. It was just one of these tricks that I did. But I sat there in that professor's office, and he said, Shale, why are you saying Columbus came here on a helicopter? Why would you use that example? You're trying to get Columbus to America, and you're fully aware that he used a ship. Why don't you just say he used a ship? He used a ship. I changed that paper. But I also realized the importance in that moment of if you're going to tell a story, tell it accurately. When you have the opportunity, there's plenty of things that we have to guess. And there's plenty of theories out there that make a level of sense. There's other things that we know what happened. And when those times present themselves, you must tell. I say this because I am by no means anything less than a detractor of John Jones. But I can't stand by and hear when people say that John is afraid to fight and then fill in the blank. First off, I, I have to correct it because it's not a unique thing to John Jones and his skill set. You could say no fighter's afraid or you could say every fighter's afraid. I couldn't possibly care less. I don't know what the point is. I do, I do not know what the point is. Unless there's an inference and you have some level of proof that that fear, that emotion that you're calling fear, stopped the fighter from going through with something. If we're having that conversation, feel free to bring it. There is nothing within John Jones's past that would make you think, regardless of fear, it has held him up for moving forward in his pursuit of his own personal dreams. There's just nothing there. The narrative one week ago, and it started four months ago, was that John Jones would not fight Sergey Pavlich. The end. People were making artwork, and they're putting it out there, and Sergey and John Small, and they had all these different reasons, and they could prove it. And then John started talking about retirement. Now, John got pulled into retirement talk. He never meant it, and he never even thought it. It got stated somewhere John saw it and thought, this could be a good marketing opportunity. I'm trying to sell some pay-per-views. It wasn't a good idea. It was a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea to the point that it will stop. Like there's nothing different about Jones and Stipe now than there was a week ago, other than we got to wait a year and they're both basically dinosaurs. And I guarantee you when these two dinosaurs come together to fight over this belt, no one's going to talk about retirement because it's weird. It was the wrong thing to do here, but a year from now, and in the presence of a reigning, young, willing, and healthy interim champion, it's weird. Mark my words. Just mark my words. It was never real. There's retirement stuff. Never. It was a marketing ploy. But I got to bring that to you because John isn't always smart enough to know that. I'm not positive that John would go, yeah, Chael's right. I was doing that for Mark. I'm not sure that he knows the difference. He starts saying things and he starts believing them. It's halfway a secret to his success. He starts saying, I'm really great at this sport. I could beat up everybody. And then next thing you know, right? Like it kind of manufactures these things. 
It's a real, the laws of attraction are real. Whether you want to uh, buy the book, The Secret or not, the laws of attraction are very real. Why the book, The Secret might be a bunch of crap. I'm just sharing with you. I don't know that John knows that he heard somebody else say it. It could have been subconscious. Somewhere along the way, he thought it was good for business. So he went with it. The problem with that is if he isn't fully aware, I'm talking about John here, if he's not fully aware of the reason that he ever started saying the make-believe retirement talk in the first place, then it will become real. He'll forget about that. He'll focus in on one guy, do just enough to beat this guy, won't have an open mind like he's always had, won't be a broad stroke, won't take on all comers. I'm just sharing for you, but mark my words. When this fight comes around, there's nothing different about it, but if we do it 10 months from now, that word won't be brought up. There is no reason for any of us to wait 10 months to do a match that's going to be their last match. None, zero, zero. You have the best promoter in the world in charge of telling this story. The world's worst promoter wouldn't make that mistake. So just to show you how insincere it is, understand nothing's new and you'll never hear that word again associated with that fight. Now, I bring this to you because I cannot sit back and let it ride that John Jones is scared of somebody. And a month ago, I apologize, a week ago that started five months ago, it was specifically Sergey Pavlich. It was not surreal. It was not an up and comer. It was not Aspinall. It wasn't a combination of these guys. It was specifically Sergey Pavlich. The reason that's a problem for me, when I'm talking about telling the story accurately, bring Columbus in on a boat, don't bring him in on a helicopter, don't teleport him here. The reason it's a problem is when Sergey Pavlich was named the backup fighter, that means Stipe and John both agreed to fight Sergey. And that's one part about it that gets missed. It's one part that I'm not ready to let go. It's one part about where I still don't understand why Stipe was in the front row and not in the ring. Sergi had already agreed to fight Stipe. Should John pull out? Bring me in, coach. Stipe had already agreed to fight Sergi. Bring me in, coach, to the point that he followed through with the airfare, went to the event. Now, I'm not looking to die on this hill. I've just got to correct you. You just can't say that John Jones isn't willing to do that. He already agreed to do that. That's just part of the story. So now it was true a week ago and started five months ago with Sergey Pavlich as it pertains to John is long gone. And people did try just for a cup of coffee there to insert Francis and Ghana. Well, Francis will beat him. That's okay to say. That's fine to say. Because now you're sharing an opinion. But where they tried to sprinkle, John refused to fight him. John didn't come back until he was gone. The timeline just doesn't match up. So when you start to look at will Tom fight Aspinall, that question always comes from a standpoint of would he be willing to do it? Would Tom be willing to do it? Tom's been very praiseworthy of John. Thomas said publicly, when he, when he hears all the accolades about himself, I'm on my way. Things are going well. I'm not ready for him. Now, that was a while ago. As a matter of fact, the time that Tom said it was almost two years ago when he said, I need three fights before I get to John. Well, he's had two. So I'm not maintaining for you that Tom isn't willing to do it. I'm just sharing for you when you start to ask the question of will these guys fight, it comes 
from a notion of are they willing to? John's already agreed to bite Pavlich. It's never been asked of John to fight Tom. Tom was not the backup fighter. Tom was not put in that spot. Tom was one in his one in his last two. He's now got the interim belt. And I'm just telling you, if you want to bag on John, go ahead. I don't believe that John and Stipe are going to fight, at least not the way we have it now. Right now, they're going to fight. It's a retirement fight for both, and the interim title's up. Oh, by the way, it's going to be in about 10 months. Of those ingredients, I do not believe all four of those ingredients hold up. At least one of them goes. And so now you got a question of, would Tom fight John? Yeah, I don't understand why he wouldn't. I'm a little bit confused by the question. I'm, I'm a little bit confused that that's being put on John's lap. The interim champion fights the undisputed champion. Everybody knows that. We fiercely adhere to the rules that we make up on the fly. But everybody knows that one, right? Everybody knows a healthy undisputed champion takes on the healthy interim champion. So now you have the idea of will the champion flex his muscle? Because he absolutely has the ability. I don't put that on John, by the way. John's got one job to do at all times. Get the biggest paycheck for the easiest opponent. I don't put that on John. But I will tell you, he's got the power to do it. He knows how to come to you, the media. He does not need to go, oh, this is what the UFC wanted. I'm just going to do it. It's whatever they wanted. In this case, he has the power to come out and do it. I don't know where that's going to go, and I don't even know that I'm arguing for you that he should do it. But when you try to suggest that John is scared and therefore unwilling to do it, there, there's something extremely important if you do want to be able to look back on this with a fondness that John takes on the younger guys. Now, one of the stories of John's career, and I've read this a million times, and it is accurate, that he only fights older guys. It's, it's accurate, but it has to be accurate when you have the moniker of the youngest world champion of all time. Mike Tyson only fought older guys. He fought an old man to win the belt. It was Larry Holmes, who was a champion at the time, but Mike was 19. I mean, it's one of those things, like, like the way your memory tells you that John is only fighting these old or these veterans or these has-beens, that wasn't so at the time. He was 23 years old. Of course he was fighting with the Shoguns. Of course he was fighting with the Machitas and the Summons and the Vitors and the Rampages. And it is very important that he test himself in this next era if, if that's something in longevity you want to do. There is not a scenario where John Jones, regardless of success or victories, there is not a scenario that when he leaves this sport, a narrative of he left without fighting that guy doesn't exist. Right now, that guy's Tom Aspinall. But one week ago, it was Sergey Pavlich, and eight days before that, it was Francis Ngannou. So the only constant denominator that you have to know, if you're John and you're his psyche, is you're never going to beat that headline. Don't even try. Fight the easiest guy for the most money and do it every time. Francis Ngannou left the UFC at the perfect time. Now, none of these things can be done. You'll even look at the greats. And I've shared with you guys before, if you ever read a business book and you're reading about this guy, rags to riches story, had nothing, borrowed some money, was sleeping on a couch, and all of a sudden he's got this empire. You will be reading from a liar. 
they will all be the same, that will have an overarching, I knew. I knew, the world told me I couldn't do it, but I believed in myself, and I knew the market was ready. You'll, you'll always see this as opposed to worked hard, put myself in a situation, and things worked out. When it started working out, I worked even harder, and I created more situations. I share this with you because it can never be by design. It's one of those things that you can look back on. So, I, like, I can't credit Francis and his team for having a great strategy. However, they did. They did. Whether it was premeditated or not, a lot like the guy that writes the business book. He had rags, and now he has riches. Like, even though he didn't know, even though he remanufactured that, it still happened. And... Let's juxtapose this. George St. Pierre, the greatest to have ever done it. And not only is he the greatest to have ever done it, he has the greatest career of anyone that's ever done it. How do we define that? Well, he won two belts at two different divisions. One time he won a world championship having never even been in that division before. Like he didn't have a fight to get his feet wet, get used to the weight, introduce, prove to anybody that he belonged. A number one contenders match. He moved into a weight class and everybody there stood back and go, of course you get the shot. All of us, not one pundit ever spoke up and said, hey, man, George has been out a while. He's never done this weight class. Like, we got to have him a fight. Never. It was the exact same situation at a different time as what John Jones just did for a more recent example, where you've proven your worth and your capabilities to such an extent that even if you change weight classes, you're going to go in. Now, when I say that George was the greatest one, yeah, he did the, he did the co-division champion. That's true. He had box office records. That's true. But he cleaned out a division and he went back and he started to clean it out a second time. And he also purely coincidentally had three different generations in George's career. Beating all the guys of today, that would be a category of that day. Well, Sean Shirk would go into just by example. But then beating the guys of yesterday, that would be the category that George defeating Matt Hughes would go into. One thing that he did when he beat, and I'm backed on George St. Pierre, when he beat Johnny Hendricks, and then Johnny being able to come back, grab the vacated title, and have his run, is that represented three different eras. So when George left, there is not a question of who the greatest was. I mean, I can tell you when we go to social events and you've got other fighters, you're in the locker room, you've got a bunch of alpha males, you've got everybody screaming that they're the best. When George comes in, we now have our best. I'm just sharing with you, this is how he is viewed and received. For the reasons that I just stated, some of which were not by design of his. He didn't plan to be three different generations of guys. He just planned to deal with the guy in front of him tonight. He didn't plan to go into a different weight class in a sold-out Madison Square Garden without ever having been in the way to no contendership matches. He just kind of looked around, saw the landscape, made his move. But there is no question when George left. There's just not a question. How awesome is that, right? Wouldn't you love that? Could you even imagine? Have you ever in your life been so good at something that anyone was there or around? It could have been something real small, your little class, your little sixth grade class, and you had something that you did, but that everybody in the class knows he's the guy, he's got a talent. I'm trying to pursue the same thing, and I don't have the same talent as him. Could you even imagine that? 
Francis is nothing like that. Francis is nothing like that, and it's helpful. Francis did not clean out a division. As a matter of fact, the guy, the big boogie monster in the room, wasn't even competing at the time. Talking about John Jones. And everybody knew that. Like, there was an asterisk next to everything. And you look at Francis's great win, Stipe Miocic. That's a hard win. That's a hard night out. And he showed some massive skills and be able to come back and do that. But the final analysis is he's one and one. They're even. It was one of these incredible situations that if you think you're insulting Francis by saying John can beat him, or he didn't clean out the division. If you think you're insulting him, I would stop you right there and I would tell you, not only are you wrong, it's extremely helpful. Look, let's go back to the St. Pierre example. We all acknowledge his greatness. If St. Pierre was going to come back today, we would have a ton of fun in this sport, but he would not be returning to tie up a loose end. It would be a story you'd have to start from scratch. And promoters with a team of creative control would not come up with anything better other than the greatest to have ever done it is back to test himself with this era. That's as good as you could make the story. That's as good as the most creative guy could make the story. There was no loose ends. Francis left at the perfect time. He has speculation. He has debate. I'm not here right now as the biggest voice in the sport making this piece had it not had the element of when Francis left and what could have been. Francis learned things from that first Stipe fight, for sure. He spoke about them. But then he changed his training regimen. He brought in guys like Clayton Jack. He spent a lot of time with Vinny Magliesh to learn the ground game, to learn to protect himself to learn to stay off the ground, to learn to get up off the bottom. He put that time in. And I just share with you that Stipe was then about to wear that same role. Stipe, who had a genuine fear of Francis the first time, lost that fear after he dominated for 25 minutes, did not bring that into the second fight, took for granted that size matters, took for granted that he had a grappling edge at that time that Francis was working to close the gap on. But Stipe then did learn, and he changed his body, and he went and put on, and I talked right to his nutritionist, Mrs. Stipe. They put on 20 pounds of muscle, fully believing that they were going to come into Francis. And we know how important that can be, right? Stipe Miocic against Francis Part 2. Stipe went at 233 pounds. To put that in perspective for you, when John Jones left the sport for three years to gain weight because he thought he was too small, he weighed about 233 pounds. I think 228 would be the exact number. So to give Stipe that chance to see what he could do, very interesting storyline. And that's before we get into John Jones coming up. And then you go and you move over in to PFL. Well, there's nobody for him to fight. You know what? That's an incredible headline. If I'm at the PFL, I'm going to write a pity big check if I can get that headline and I can get it day after day, week after week, month after month. You're not insulting me. You're not insulting my roster. 
you're complimenting my newest signing for one. Point number two, he then goes and delves into boxing. I have not within my lifetime seen a boxer so heavily spoke about, who, by the way, has never won a boxing match. Like, that's one part of the story that everybody forgets. When you're talking about the mystique that is Francis and God, when you're talking about that, it's very hard to keep reality. It's very hard. I mean, we have, we have the WBO president saying, I'm going to put him in the top 10. The problem with that, first off, he didn't do it. But secondly, the problem is you're going to have to pull somebody out of the top 10. And every single one of those guys in the top 10 have had about 100 fights. And yes, I'm including amateur. But of those 100 fights, including amateur, they have an over 93% winning average. You're going to move one of them out to put a guy in who's never won. I mean, he couldn't get a ranking before he... I want you to really think about this. Francis could not get a ranking before he boxed. That makes perfect sense. We would never think that he could. He then did box and he lost. So his record's now worse. He couldn't get a ranking at 0-0. He's now 0-1. And not only is the president saying they're going to rank him, we're all waiting for it. Like, yeah, the question isn't top 10. The question is where in the top 10. And I happen to think it should be number one. It's an interesting spot, though. And Francis leaving when he did, that is not going to be history looking back and saying, well, he didn't do this and he didn't do that and John Jones was out. It's not going to be any of those things. That's not how it works. That's a very short-term approach. And I know people feel that in the short term. The real greats, if they were to come back, would have something great to come back to. George doesn't have that. You would have to create, well, what about Khabib or what about Kamar Usman? Everyone will listen. You'll do some really good business. I'm just sharing. George left no loose ends. He gets the ultimate pat on the back and he gets elevated to the ultimate pedestal that nobody else has been put at. But he loses the headline. He loses the narrative. When you're talking about legacy, so many people, and to use that word, I got to tell you, it's a little bit weird. I never really liked it myself when I would go to the football games on Friday night, I'm talking about in high school, and then see guys that had previously graduated return to watch those games and have their Letterman's jackets on. I think that legacy is a little bit of a strange thing, but defining legacy is something that very seldomly is even attempted within our sport. We throw the term out. We throw the term goat out. We throw the word promotion out. But if we bring you down one notch and just go, how are you defining that? It's a very, very difficult thing to do. And one thing about legacy is that you were spoke about. Now, they could speak about you challenging what you did. They could speak about you praising what you did. The praise is very nice, but those articles are very few. Controversy creates cash. Francis leaving did a great job, goes on top, and leaves the audience wanting more. That's the ultimate recipe. It's the ultimate formula. And even if it wasn't strategic and on purpose, it's what Francis did. He left at the right time. Hindsight's 2020, right? Jamal Hill, we took the belt off him. Was it the right move? Jamal Hill gave the belt back. Whatever you want to do. Was it the right move? And a large part of those circumstances, you go into the interim belt. We did an interim belt the same night 
the same night, and it's really kind of the talk of the town, right? Like the interim belt, not only from an achievement standpoint, but from a marketing standpoint, feels almost foolproof. I love it. I have never seen it fail. I mean, if you looked at pay-per-view numbers and you saw what Surreal Gone and Francis Ngannou did, I, I understand that that is a one-off, but from a marketing standpoint, that was sought after. The media went for it. People put in the request. The shows were willing to run that storage. The posters, these guys' bodies. Oh my gosh, these guys look like they were carved out of clay. It had everything. You can't make those guys accept the request. You can't, you can't make them do it. I mean, I just maintain for you that it's foolproof. Champion versus champion works. And you know what else works about it? You know what else is so great about it is we don't have to have these discussions. Who should be next? And that's one of the rare spots that we're in with the heavyweights right now is who should be next? Are we going undisputed versus interim, like the history says? And the reason I bring up the heavyweights is it's speculated that John Jones is going to be out around 10 months, right? And that's a meaningful amount of time. If you look at the heavyweight champion prior to John Jones, he was out from March to January. So 10 months, I think it was the higher end of nine. You understand my point? And Tom Aspinall was out in a basketball game. He rolled his ankle. I've never been satisfied. Jamal Hill, I've, ne I've never been satisfied on the Jamal Hill story. And I think he's one of the more interesting and fascinating guys out there. But he can only tell it so many times. If he's doing an interview, he needs to be teed up. The media has not gone after that. The media didn't go after it with Yuri Prohaska, right? You have a heavyweight championship. It's very relevant. One guy is estimated to be out 10 months. Not even a discussion. The guy before him was out 10 months. It was never a discussion of taking the strap off of him. But that was simultaneous. That was at the same time that Yuri Prohaska got hurt and one week later had his belt. Removed. You go into Jamal Hill, who very good reason. He picks up the strap. He picked it up because Prohaska relinquished. It was one of these situations where out of sportsmanship, out of you did for me, let me do back for you. Jamal returns that opportunity and lets the very guy, Yuri Prohaska, I mean, it was very sweet and poetic justice. It was all a very nice thing to do. Was it the right thing to do? Now we're having a discussion of should Alex Piera wait for Jamal Hill? I actually heard I heard that question today. My only response would be, as opposed to what? And before I answer the question, and as much as I like the idea of Hill returning for the championship that he never lost, I feel like that's a more complicated story to tell than if they both just have a belt. Now, I don't know how long Jamal's out. I haven't heard that speculated anywhere. I haven't heard Dr. Abbasi come out and talk about what the injury is and talk about what we can expect and what rehab will look like. If these things have happened, but bring it to mind, I haven't heard them and I follow this guy. I don't know what's going on here. So it's very hard to make a decision. And it's very relevant. We, we were told bad information on Prohaska. And I'm not suggesting we were misled. I'm not a conspiracy. We either had a miracle or we had a misdiagnosis. The fact of how how quiet it was, I would believe we had a misdiagnosis. I don't think that should bring somebody embarrassment. By the way, that's my own opinion. I don't think that. 
You look at the evidence, you, 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 you do your job, you compare it to past things that you've seen, you got somebody that heals a little bit faster. I don't see where that would cause embarrassment. Either way, we have never been made whole on that story. That Yuri Prohaska story and having the belt taken off him seven days later, and then he tried to fix it and say, they didn't take it from me, I gave it back. And either way, they accepted it right. I don't really care if you pull it off her finger or she threw it at you. I don't really care if you both accept it and your car went away and there was no tears and no fight, and no letters back and forth, and no makeup, dinner, chocolates, and flowers. We're, we're really saying the same thing. And that was in December. By January, Yura Prohaska is on social media saying, I'm ready to fight. February and March, and he's saying, I'm ready to fight. He starts putting out training videos. These weren't just words. He was ready to fight. So how long has he been ready? Yura Prohaska, how long has he been ready and what was the delay? Was he ever injured in the first place? There is significant circumstantial evidence that he wasn't, and I'm not even going to make you a piece on it because I made you four and you guys don't care. For some reason, that isn't a story, but it's now playing out again right in front of us. Right in front of us with Jamal. Like, I can't begin to give you a guess on what Jamal should do. I can't begin to give you a prediction. Should Jamal turn or return and take on Pierre? Of course. It's the championship that he never, of course, he would return into a world title fight. But that's also already been stated. That's not just Chael's opinion. That's what's going to happen. The question is, when is he coming back? Was this a misdiagnosis? Yuri Prohaska's was said to be the worst injury that we have ever seen. That's a quote. He was ready to go one month later. And one month was only 21 days. It was three weeks. The worst ever. The guy was ready in three weeks. Jamal was not said to be the worst injury or anything even remotely close to that. So if I'm basing it off of that, can I expect that he's back in, in, in a fast period of time? I'd like, that isn't science. That's not really all that good of data. But I don't have anything else to go on. When is he going to be back? And then with hindsight being 2020, why is he not the champion? He's doing champion things. Right? Like, there's a way that a champion behaves. And there's a way that champions don't behave. And you can't control them, right? They're the champion. They're the big swing and dick, and they got a bunch of money. They're going to do what they want to do. They get their receipt when they're done. When they are done, they will be spoke about. Anyway, when you talk about legacy, every fighter wants that to be resume. They want it to be so bad, and they think that it is, but nobody knows. Nobody knows. I fought a lot of men. I don't know what my record was. That's not a joke or trying to be funny at all. I do not know. My son's new in wrestling. That's a form of combat. I can't even tell you how attached I am. I don't know how many matches he's had. Not at all trying to be funny. Not a dumb guy. I'm actually a real numbers guy. Nobody knows their records. No fan knows somebody else's record. There's one guy in MMA where you would bet a week's pay that you could produce his record, and it's Khabib because it was 29-0. and 0. I bring that to you because every fighter wants so bad their legacy to be about resume. I did this. I won. I defended that thing six times. Nobody knows. And it doesn't make a bit of difference. If the fans like you, they will then say nice things about you. That's what your legacy is. 100% is it about your, re it's about your reputation. 
That's it. And if you don't do things a champion will do, because you can, you can get away with it. You can cut the line. You can have your own locker room. You can skip the autograph session. Whatever it might be, you'll get a receipt. And if you're good enough that we can't give it to you in the form of opponent. Now, that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to get you beat up as soon as we don't like you. But if you're so good we can't do it, we'll get you your receipt. We'll just wait till you're done. And then we'll remember you in a different way than you would like. We've had people do this. We've had We've had big stars, high paid, all this wonderful stuff. And the moment they're done, they don't ever come back to an event. They don't ever say hello to a fan. They don't ever go out of their way to make somebody's day that helped them to get there. And they don't return it to the fighters that are still left behind. It's very relevant when you come back to an event. Like I don't just mean that you got to park your, your ass in the front row and do a great job like, say, the Diaz boys who are always giving back. You, you don't have to do that. It's an expression return to the event. You want somebody great at giving back, and his legacy will reflect it. He's the biggest draw in the entire sport, and I don't know the last time that he won a fight. Conor McGregor. But he will stay in contact with you constantly. Israel Adesanya. But he will stay in contact with you. That's called going to the event. Connor wasn't at the show. Israel wasn't actually at the show. They were involved. They were involved nonstop. Meanwhile, you have a champion who was supposed to be on the card that didn't show up. His opponent did. And then you have another champion also dealing with an injury who couldn't be on the card. That's Jamal Hill, and he was at the show. He was in a riot. He was filming the whole thing. He had stuff to say, he had opinions to have, he had a crowd to put on, he had people to call out in two different divisions. He didn't give an F. His job is to entertain, and he showed up and he entertained. It's different. He's going to have a different legacy moving forward, the way that he'll be talked about, the way that he'll be remembered. And I like the idea, right, because it's all marketing. I'm just talking about from a marketing standpoint. That's the only reason. That's the only question I'm asking you right now. Are we better off to have Jamal as the champion and have Pierre as an interim champion? Right now, as we go into this fight, and to give us all a little bit of clarity, or, and you have to remember this, because there's guys that have tried to break this rule, right? And God bless them. The first guy to do it was Matt Hughes. And I'm not convinced Matt Hughes worked on his own. I think Mike Goldberg uh, was a, a co-conspirator. But each time Matt would defend a championship and win, he would then add a world championship. If he showed up, he was a world champion, and he defended. He's a two-time world champion, <laughs> then he was a three-time world champion. And there's definitely something that you should get for doing that, but you don't get to change the vernacular. You cannot win a second championship until you lost in the first place. You can relinquish it. It can be a drug test. You can. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you cannot have it, but you cannot be a two-time champion if you didn't lose it in the first place. That part, from a marketing standpoint, I like for Jamal. Jamal will return not only to pick up the belt that he never lost, he will return for a very rare heir. A John Jones, a Daniel Cormier-esque, a second light heavyweight championship. I like that side of it. But I still don't have enough information, and I don't know why. I don't know why you guys don't care about the Prohaska story. I just don't know. I've had a few of these. I've had a few of these uh, lumps and... in the punch bowl, one of the great stories of all of last year, one of the greats, maybe one of the hottest, if I was to predict, was Charles Oliveira having the belt taken off of him because he missed weight. 
that was a lawsuit waiting to happen. The jurisdiction on that, not one person anywhere ever read the bylaw within the state of Arizona oversight to this day. I thought that was a red hot story. We had an executive director on the East Coast face attorney general investigation for seven years. It's never come out. And that's a public agency. Like there's something that I just miss that I think you'll really care about. Prohaska had the belt taken off him. You guys want to say he gave it back. It doesn't matter. It's the worst injury ever. Or was it? I think it's a big deal. I get it wrong. Jamal is doing everything right. Everybody wants to see him fight. He was in a riot that he filmed over the weekend that if you go and check the clicks, did more views than any interview of a fight that was held inside the garden that he was sitting outside of. That's interesting stuff. He's apparently going to return. He's got an ankle injury. How bad's the injury? What was it? When can we expect him to return? I would think that these would be follow-up questions. But when a person had a chance to interview him, they asked him, how'd you get stuck in the riot? Sky Sport Sky Sport is a, that's a real publication. Uh, I mean, not for nothing. They come with credibility. They got a lineage. They got a bunch of clicks. They have several different platforms and avenues to do it. And they did an interview with Leon Edwards. Great opportunity, right? So they caption it with a headline. Oh, I'm going to read it to you. But this is the caption of the headline. And I quote, Leon Edwards wants winner of Strickland versus DDP for UFC 300. Well, that's very interesting to me. I haven't heard Leon ever call out anybody ever. In fact, when Leon made his push to get a world title fight, I never heard him called out Kamara Usman. If you can correct me, go ahead. It's a personal statement. I didn't hear it. I heard him say, I want my opportunity. I want to fight for the belt. I heard him say those things. I didn't hear him say Kamara Usman, by example. So... This caught my attention. Leon, according to the headline, called out Strickland or DDP, whoever wins. So I click on it and I go read the body of work. And it starts out with a quote from Leon. And I'd like to quote that for you. Yes, let's do it. All right, hold on. Let me stop you right there, Sky Sport. The caption says that Leon wants the winner of Strickland DDP. As soon as I read the body, it starts out and I quote, yes, let's do it. That means you asked the question. He agreed to the question. So it wasn't his idea. It was your idea. And apparently you got him to say, yes, I'm okay with the whole thing, but that's a little bit misleading. Now, I was very excited prior to clicking on this because I would wonder why. And Leon had something very interesting happen to him. He had an opponent in Colby Covington, and then a future opponent should he win in Blahal Mohammed. right? He's got two, two at once. He's trying he's try to swing these things, and that's unique. We don't have a lot of times where you have a number one contender and the next guy. In fact, I could name four in the history of the sport. Unique, So, but this is a spot that Leon gets put in. And we're not talking about immediate rematches and if this happens or that happens or the other things happens. We're talking about Colby Covington calls out. He's going to ignore a rematch with Leon 
potentially, he's going to not observe the backup fight or the next fight, which is Blaham Muhammad. In fact, he's going to leave the weight class completely. He's going to give the title opportunity to Islam Makhlchev. Now, that was meant as nothing more than a slight by Chaos Covington. The problem is Islam liked the idea. So now Islam starts using interview and airtime to go after Colby instead of building up his own division. Colby starts using interview and airtime to go after Islam instead of his division, of which allegedly already has an opponent, which is Baha Muhammad. I mean, do you see where this gets interesting, guys? Do you see where this could, ooh, this could be juicy. Now, when I go back to Leon, he's saying something that he wants. And Leon has had a wildly difficult time getting what he wants. COVID was rough on us all. But in the world of MMA, it was specifically trying for Leon. Leon had won more fights than I can keep track of. And I believe it's seven. I'm going to the beginning of COVID. I know that he went eight without a loss when he went for the title shot. I'm sure at the start of COVID, then he couldn't get a flight out. He couldn't go anywhere. There was even reports, accurate or not. He couldn't even get in the gym and train. Like there was just certain regulations where he was at. So it was a really tough spot by Leon. Not to mention the fight that he lost because of COVID was the one. It was the one that would get him to the one. It was going to be, to remind you, Chemayev. He was going to fight a young 4-0 Chemayev who's done two at the weight class, two in a different weight class. But by God, young Leon, if you get this one done, no more games. You're going for the title shot. And... Well, it didn't get done, there was a main event that got slipped in there with Blahal Mohammed, of which ended in an eye poke. And frankly, I can't remember who poked who. I just remember it being a no contest. Now, meanwhile, I'll back you up three weeks ago to Johnny Walker pretending that he was disoriented, having a no contest, and allegedly that fight's getting rebooked. Nobody's asked for it. Not one of you has ever said, I want to see Uncle Lion versus Johnny Walker. But allegedly, that's in the process of being rebooked, a similar scenario that people did want that was a main event, entered a no contest with an eye poke. And I couldn't tell you if Blahal poked him or Blahal got poked. So I'm just sharing what a difference a day makes, right? What, 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 what a different setting. And you then give the gifts of gifts to the young man who looked like maybe he was getting a little bit of a short end of it, but definitely had your guys' support, right? You, you guys really did come to the aid of Leon. Even if that appears to be a distant memory and forgotten, you did. You backed him up big time. They couldn't get him a title fight. They did something else massive. Not only did he have a main event on ESPN, he rolled into a co-main event spot, but it was opposite Nate Diaz. It's a co-main event, but it was the biggest fight of the night. It's the one people came to see. I was there live. There was no reception like this. In fact, it was so coveted, they even, to hell with protocol, we're going to make this one five rounds. So we're trying to give something to Leon. That's my point. We're trying. Got him out of his country, got some money in his hand, got him into a main event. Who cares what happened in the main event? You poked me, I poked you. Forget the whole thing. It's going to something really big out here in Texas called Nate Diaz. Let's parlay that right into a world title fight. And that's because of you guys. You guys went out, you did a great job, and you got behind a guy, and you did the right thing. But the moment that that title was one, the moment it was one, with the head kick heard around the world, 
the post-fight press conference that night had the most powerful man in the sport, Dana White, say, I am going to seek a venue in England. I am going to bring the trilogy to this young man, our new champion's backyard. And what a tremendous honor. It was not scheduled. It wasn't let's look down the road and end up being a March of this year. It wasn't let's look down the road and see when we can get to England. It was, hey, team, go find a place in England where I can show this guy. What a big deal. And that was three for three. When the fight with Chemayev got booked, it was, well, hey, if you do this, you, you get one. But but it was still met with some resistance. Leon was ranked number three. Chemayev had a bunch of hype, but he, he was four and four in two different weight classes. Or, or I apologize, four and oh, but two in weight, this weight class, two in that weight class. He had absolutely no ranking. It did feel as a way of sweeping a guy. Whether that's the truth or not, it did feel that way. So whether that fight materialized or not, a main event did, followed by Nate Diaz, followed by a world title, followed by a world title in your own hometown. I mean, not for nothing, whatever whatever grievances or wrongs the MMA powers did to Leon, they made up for. Can we all agree on that? Okay. Because at the post-fight press conference, in the trilogy fight, in his backyard, done special for him, he turned down a fight with Colby Covington. It was one of those very rare opportunities. We're at the post-fight press conference, and when Dana gets asked what next, he has an answer that isn't, let's see what happens. You got negotiations, back and forth, contracts, where are we at? You got drug tests, you got commissions. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. This was one of the rare occurrences where Dana could answer the question. He could do it on good authority, and we can start the press tour because Colby Covington happens to be right there. He flew out, he's in shape, he's licensed, he's on weight as of yesterday. So we'll move forward and this is what we're going to do. And at that press conference, Leon said no. And not only did he say no, two months later, which now brings you to May, Leon wasn't only still on no, he was bringing in Mohammed. They started teaming up and working together trying to get Colby pushed out. Now, I don't know what's taken us till December. I don't know what would take us from March to December. I mean, I must admit that, that that I don't actually know. But I know a fight was announced that it was going to happen in March. I know Colby never blinked. I know there's never been a report from Leon's side that he was hurt and or sick. But you get three fights a year and he's only going to have two. And I am guessing, I admit that, but I'm guessing that you couldn't get the match done, which represents the only thing that you've ever asked the guy to do. All these things that you did for him, number one contenders match, and not not even have to do it, worldwide leader, VSPN main event, Nate Diaz in a co-main that we're going to elevate to five round, world title fight, another world title fight in your hometown. Like It would seem like when you get asked to do something, the answer would be yes, but it wasn't yes. It wasn't yes. So to come out and say, I want to fight Strickland or Duplisi, that sounds like a favor. That sounds like something that you build up goodwill. There's other people that have had champ champ opportunities, but if you look in their history, there was a lot of goodwill. It was not just an opportunity they took because it was good for them. And it's simply food for thought. I don't have an overarching moral to this story. But to have an opportunity like Sky TV and to use that to go 
after an unknown opponent, one of two guys, an absolutely unknown opponent, in a weight class you've never delved in, while being armed, one of the few guys that's armed, with what's next if you win, which happens to be Hall, having an opportunity to go out and build something that you can actually functionally have and possess, but not electing to do it, going in a direction that is a complete waste of time. Took me 10 minutes, 55 seconds to tell you that story. But it's 10 minutes and 55 seconds that I saved from you going to clickbait on Sky TV to hear about a 70-pound champion that doesn't want to fight a 70-pounder. He doesn't want to fight the backup 70-pounder. He wants to leave the division against an unknown opponent in a fight that's yet to even take place because he thinks it would be massive. Stay by your phone. In the future, we'll call you with ideas. Save the thinking for the smart people. Patty the Batty came out talking about Tony Ferguson and he said it was a lose-lose situation. Now, that is most definitely a phrase I have heard attached to Patty's position against Tony Ferguson from the day that it was announced. I've heard a number of people say that. It's always bothered me because it's rude. In front of everything, it's tremendously rude. When, when you have identified that Tony Ferguson is down in the dumps, Physically, mentally, a combination of the two, career-wise, whatever it is, but when you have successfully identified that and then you verbalize it, you're a dick. What would be your point of saying that? Do you think Tony doesn't know? Do you think Tony doesn't know he needs a win? Do you think Tony doesn't know he needs a better showing? Do you think Tony doesn't know he's on the verge of the whole plug, plug being pulled? Like, what is it that you're attempting to achieve by stating something so glaringly obvious. And moreover, when you state it, it is very different than the principle, in this case, Patty, stating it. Like, as a matter of fact, it's okay when you say it. You made an observation. You would like people to know. You have data to support it. It's got three fights, four fights, six fights. Got this many on his contract, and I read this on the underground form. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. But it is very different when Patty himself says it. And I want to tell you why. It doesn't make it less true. But there is a massive arrogance within the statement as though you're the veteran. And I changed the way I speak about Patty a while ago. Patty is not what I thought Patty was. He's not some brash-talking Brit that's going to sell some local tickets and you put him somewhere on the card, never at the main event. He, he's not those things. First off, he's not all that brash. Secondly, he's not all that great with the quips. I kind of heard, heard he was a little better on the stick than he turned out to be. But third, he has showed me nothing from a physicality that would disqualify him as a potential world champion. I just didn't know he was that good. I do know now. 
uh, the adversity that he came through with Jared in that fight, to get two or three judges to say he won the thing, but also to handle it in the aftermath, it was a, it was a very veteran move and it was very savvy. And it was actually Patty's previous fight to that when he was dealing with the death of a loved one. He was dealing with a miserable weight cut. He was dealing with all sorts of hype stuck on the O2. I mean, there was just a lot of things that he overcame and dealt with and performed so incredibly well when I then find out he was not performing all that well. By his own standard of potential, he had more. That wasn't a great night, and he still looked great. So I've just changed the way that I spoke about Patty, but I do have to at times wonder. I, I mean, <clears throat> Patty's saying he doesn't have, that it's a lose-lose against Tony is very rude. Now, he's involved with it. He can go ahead and do that if he wants, but but I also have internal thoughts that I kept to myself because they were rude. But but if we're all just saying out loud what we're thinking inside, what in the hell is it that, that, that Patty's done that makes him a win for Tony? I mean, you talk about Tony's a lose-lose. If I lose to him, I lost to him. If I beat him, I was supposed to beat him. That's the narrative on a lose-lose. Okay, fair enough. What do you think happens to Tony if he beats Patty? Why don't you answer that question for me? What within all of those matches that Tony wanted so bad, five up, five down with Khabib, if you want to go back that far, the Charles Oliveira story does not exist without Tony Ferguson. Fight of the Knights against guys that have been on the Weedy Box like Anthony Pesman. How far do you want to go back? So what is it that happens for Tony? If it's so goddamn good, what happens to Tony if he beats Patty? Does he get any of those matches back? Does he get Khabib back? Does he not slip on the court and tear his knee up and cause himself part of his career? Does he get those things back? What is it that you think happens? Do you think Tony should be cut? Do you think Tony's contract, when it expires, should be the end of the line? Okay, great. If he beats Patty, do you think we should change that? We've seen enough and we have enough evidence, but, you know, this is the rule. Let's just throw him out there and get him a few more fights because, you know, he's got he's to have three in a row. Is that what you think? Are you not mature enough to step forward? What would change? So if it appears that a loss is pretty understandable, I just want to ask you the other side. What is the victory if he beats Patty? He's already, I'm talking about Tony here, he's already the main event, at least for non-title fights. There's nobody on the card higher than him unless they have a championship that they're defending. So where do you want him to go? With those six losses, he's still outdrawing and a higher placement than everybody in the car, except for the champions. Where do you want him to go? I know what a loss does. I get that. I want you to tell me what a win does. Where does that move Tony? Because if you don't have an answer to that, that's the definition of a lose-lose. And I would be curious what it is Patty thinks Tony is looking to achieve. Patty has not fought in a period of time. Now, I've come around. I look and I saw something special, and I am right. There is a massive potential there. There is a guy that's having problems cutting weight that should affect your conditioning. I believe does affect his condition, and he can still weaponize pace. He'll still go harder than anybody else out there. I don't know how he does it. I've been teammates with guys that spend their time in the practice room burning calories to get the weight off so they can beat the scale. The scale becomes their number one opponent, but as a byproduct, they get in goddamn good shape. Like, I've seen that too. I've seen it both ways, but the definition of a lose-lose 
I understand it for Patty. Sure I do. It's a very rude thing to say against a guy who was supposed to fight Khabib five different times, who's had a belt, who's headlined, who's main evented, who's won more performance bonuses than you've had fight. It's a rude thing to say. It doesn't make it an accurate thing to say. It doesn't make it inaccurate at all. I actually understand it from Patty's standpoint. I don't think he should have brought up. He should have let us either way. Go look in the mirror. What does Tony Ferguson get if he beats you? What does he get? Where does he go? Does he get a new contract? Is it shiny and bright? Does he get a new car? Are any of those things, do you think, true? Do you think he gets a higher placement on a card where he's already the thick spot of a pay-per-view? Which I believe is a place that Patty's only found himself one other time. I believe his fight with Jared was a pay-per-view, and I, I don't believe he's ever been on pay-per-view aside from that. So I'm wondering, what's what's the win? Prefer. What is so great about it? Where would he go from there? Do you all think he should get a new contract? Do you think he should change weight class? Do you think he should fight for a world championship? Do you think he should get no gems? Do you think everybody should go train with David Goggins? Like, what is it that you think happens? Does he get more clicks, more views, more fight kicks, more Reeboks, more Rufkas, more rock shoes? Like, what is it that you think? There has to be a bright side to it, or it, by definition, is a lose-lose. So you say, Tony... You say Patty, rather, is in a lose-lose. Don't you think Tony is, too? ...party for Cole Peters. I told him I'm looking forward to going home tonight and watching it. This was on a Saturday, and he told me it's on tomorrow. I quickly argued with Cole. I said, Cole, what are you talking about? They don't box on Sunday. They don't do pay-per-views on Sunday. Floyd Mayweather and Logan aren't fighting on Sunday. Yeah, sure enough, it was the next day. It was a Sunday. Either way, when that ended, Logan came out and said, man, I didn't get paid. I did this through the money team, Float's promotional company, and I didn't get paid. And that is a tremendous thing to say about another man, whether you hear that with your ears or not. If you, if we have a bargain and I do my end and you do not pay me, you are talking to the deepest and most fundamental levels of a man's character. And Floyd did take it that way. And Floyd did come out and said, hold on. And very little was given to us, and it quickly went away, which leads me to believe that it was resolved. I don't actually have that piece of information. But Floyd did come out to say, hey, whoa, hold on. On a pay-per-view, it's different. X amount of money comes after 30 days. X amount comes after 60 days. Like, Floyd kind of laid this out. And it's known in our business colloquially as the drip. Whatever you're paid to show, whatever you're paid to win contractually, you will be handed that night. The back-end bonuses are different. And Floyd didn't get too into the weeds of it, but I knew what he meant. And that did appear to go away. So it appears that it got resolved. And I would just predict for you, it wasn't a number like anybody would have thought. But these dumb sons of bitches did a boxing match where they don't even count the result. They didn't even honor the made-up results they said. And they did it on a Sunday. Like, you really don't deserve that much for that. So then you fast forward and you got Logan, who's got his hand in many different things. Like if you just had his podcasting money, you'd light your money on fire. But he doesn't just have his podcasting money. I believe his number one driver is Prime. And then he's got the WWE gimmick going, which he just uses to boost things such as Pride in the in the podcast. And then he was going out and doing the boxing, right? I mean, there's a really great system where this young man has figured it out. He created multiple revenue streams, all of which have a length. 
None of which you can be doing until your retirement years when you're 75 and decide to go run off with your grandchildren. Like, if you think he's going to be peddling energy drink to sixth graders in his senior years, right? It's one of these situations. You strike when the iron's hot. And I thought it was very interesting when he said there's no money in boxing. I apologize. When he said it's broke. And then when I read the article, he was telling me it wasn't making a lot of money. I'm just curious. Like, one guy's not a lot of money. I'm, I'm sure... To the rest of us, we go, wow, that that sure was a pile of money for one night, for something that you don't have a lineage in. You appear to have made more money in these couple of matches that you did than Andre Ward, who was a sixth division world champion, a world and Olympic champion before that. I just threw out the name Andre Ward. I don't want to make my, my, my point is right. Like if you were a boxer and you've done a hundred of these and you started eight years old and you lived your whole life in a gym, that's what you know. You will never touch what he made. So I would be curious what he means there wasn't money. And I would also be curious if he felt he was being shorted. Because I know he did after Floyd. He made that public. Whether that got resolved or not, at one point, Logan felt he was being shorted. Whoever's counting the cups needs an audit. This is how he felt about it. But he started doing business after them, and I warned him. I mean, I, I've warned all of you guys as clear as I can speak. The money team, that's not real. I had this debate with Ariel as it pertained to Francis, who now will do co-promotes because he has a promotion company. He's go, oh my God. Except that's not real. And I, I only bring that to you because Logan was new in it, and he was a young kid. And I imagine he looked up to Floyd. I imagine he admired Floyd. And if you're a good, truthful guy, you think other people are going to be, not to mention when it's somebody you look up to, not to mention when the guy's going around acting like he's got billions of dollars and he just owes you a couple of million, it would seem like it's very simple. But there's a reason, if anybody ever brings of wealth, if you ever meet a guy that brags of wealth, make him pay in cash. So been going back and forth on Twitter with a gentleman we'll call Eric. We'll call him Eric because that's his name. Now, I got to tell you, when you're dealing with a civilian, I wouldn't extend this to fighters, by example. If I want to give a fighter the business, I want to come after George Mosvidal, I want to go after Ariel, whatever it might be, somebody within our space, fair game. When you come after a civilian who is not in the space, I believe it is a very cowardly thing to do First off, to do it, but moreover, if you don't give them an opportunity to rebute. So for Eric, if you would like to rebute, you make me any video, you send it to me, my word, I will upload it on YouTube. You can say your piece uninterrupted. But Eric's a very handsome guy, and, and he's an attorney. And that means something to me. That's something when I was a little kid, people used to tell you to aspire to be like. Two, two professions in my whole life I've ever had people, multiple coaches, teachers, parents, tell me were aspirational, which was doctor and attorney. In my life, in my I've never heard a third option. It's a go to school and, and do well and get a good college and go on to be a doctor and attorney. So Eric is very busy on social media. I haven't seen him be right once. And... It's a very baffling situation for me where I don't fully know how to begin. And when I, by the time I come at him on social media, by coming on a Twitter, 
I only have 160 characters or less, but when I say he hasn't been right once, like that would normally be a broad stroke. You're always wrong. Nobody's always wrong. Well, if he's ever been right, I haven't seen it. And Eric put out a very passionate piece and it was meant to be a very sweet piece, I believe. And the enemy in every Eric story is the ultimate fighting championship. Whatever is going on, where you got a good guy and a bad guy, they 100% of the time are the bad guy. And he was talking about John Jones and Francis Ngannou. And Francis had made a comment to the media. And he said, the UFC is to blame for not making me and John. We both wanted to do it. And that was Francis's statement. I read that in a headline. In all fairness, I didn't click and see the body of work and what exactly the context was. But Eric weighed in on that. And he took that very quote. And then he said, say whatever you want. Do whatever you want with the facts. Do whatever you want with your opinion around this. Those are the facts that the UFC screwed up and is solely to blame for not making John Jones versus Francis Ngannou because both fighters wanted it. That's an important part of the statement. And if you guys had said that and that was your opinion as an outsider, I would never give you a hard time. You don't ever have to be right, ever. If you ask me my opinion, I will give you something so you have accurate information. But if you come to the wrong conclusion, you're allowed to. A fan can do whatever they want. You'll have somebody, a fan, they tell, they'll tell fans you need to be respectful. You need to appreciate this. No, you don't. No, no, if I buy a ticket and I show up, I can boo. I don't have to like you and I don't have to appreciate what you're doing. I can even take a joy in your misery of defeat. I'm a fan. But there was something different with Eric because he was a lawyer. And to see him consistently always be wrong. So, and you got to understand it from this standpoint, because a lot of it you're talking about paperwork. You're talking about a contract. Like, for example, if you guys wanted to say, what a mistake. We should have made Francis versus John Jones. Okay, great. I'll make Francis versus John Jones right now. Francis is going to take on John Jones. But you see the problem where I don't get to make it. Why? Because I don't have a contract. For me to say the words I'm going to do it, it, I have to have a contract and get that signed, right? That's the difference. But it's a very big deal because this came from a lawyer that they screwed up not making the fight and they're the only ones to blame because both fighters wanted it. Well, let's just take a little bit of a look at that. Now, I'm told to nauseam that it's a business and there's politics and whatever makes the most money is what Dana White will do. In a broad stroke, there's a lot of truth to that. There is fiduciary responsibilities when you're heading up a company, particularly that has shareholders. Like, I wouldn't even begin to tell you that you're wrong. It's the absoluteness to the statement and the absoluteness that no matter what, Dana's only going to do what makes most money. The absoluteness to the statement that becomes a problem is Dana White, while John Jones was out, unlicensed, and had not even hinted at a return date, announced John would be the number one contender and would fight for the belt upon his return. And Dana also stated, if you guys remember this, 
That was at two different weight classes. They weren't fully convinced he was going to lock in at heavyweight. He might return and go light heavyweight. And Dan, I'm just sharing with you the conversation, whether you want to debate that or not, is, is Dana made it very clear when John comes back, John will be fighting for the belt, wherever that's at. So that in and of itself removes your desire to say it was only for the money. We're not going to follow rankings. We're not going to follow anything else. It's whatever the biggest fight was. It wasn't a fight. We didn't know who the champion was going to be. We didn't even know what weight class he was going to do it at. But the statement was still made. So it was very similar to when Francis beat Rosenstruck. And Dana went to the post-fight press conference and said, Francis, next fight will be for the belt. And the reason that was so unique is Stipe and Cormier were still upcoming. At that point in our career, at that point in our sport, we had never had a number one contender prior to the title fight taking place. Because back to the original argument that we're going to do whatever's best for money. Well, you don't know what's best for business in a star-driven industry where you're going to main event and headline your premier title, which is the championship, and you've already named a number one contender regardless of who it is. It's very relevant that you, that you understand these things. Because when Eric talks about this, John Jones and Francis were under contract together. And when I tell you I can't make the fight, I can't come and say, all right, John and Francis are going to fight. Have you guys do anything with it or do it with any level of validity? For no other reason than I don't have contracts. I don't even have them. I don't have a stack of paperwork. It's not just a matter if I get somebody to sign them. I don't have them. I don't have a legal department. I don't have those. Do you, do you understand how important this is? Because for 10 months, Francis was out with a leg injury. So at no point in there could the UFC make the fight. They had done as much as they could do to make the fight, which is to tell the world, we're going to make the fight. It's what they wanted to do to the point that they told the world they were going to do it. The difference, much like the reason I can't do it, is paperwork wasn't done. Whoever gets the paperwork done is who made the fight. Do you understand that distinction? And you might not, but Eric's an attorney. So for 10 months, there was no ability to make the fight. Francis was out with an injury. We're now at a standpoint where John Jones is out with an injury. So I'm hearing a narrative, including parroted by my legal friend. It's a very handsome guy, looks great in a suit and is very active on social media. UFC refuses to co-promote. It's an ego issue. There's an ego. Put the egos aside and do the right fight by God, right? I mean, we're hearing these things with this vigor in your voice. John Jones can't fight anybody. He's out. He's out, just so you understand. But he wasn't always out. There was an overlap of John and Francis. There, there was an overlap where they were both here. And the decision maker, Dana White, who's being blamed for this, did everything that he could do up until that point. He walked to the point where the next thing is paperwork, but he couldn't do that step because he had an injury. And he couldn't book an injured fighter. Now, you think you know the story to tell me that Francis was unhappy and he wanted to box Fury and he needed a carve out and he was running this out. I don't disagree with you. But there's a distinction in why I can't make the fight by saying I'm going to do it. And he could. And the distinction is having those contracts signed and having the ability to 
to have those contracts signed. And they did have an overlap, John Jones and Francis Ngannou. And I don't mind whatever happened to them not coming together. Guys don't have to fight a guy. I, I truly don't mind that. But to retell the story or say that it's somebody else's fault when that person wanted to make the fight, that is not correct and that's not what happened. All right, everybody, that is it for today's episode. I have had it with you all, but thank you for listening. And a shout out to a listener who commented on my Spotify episode. He said, Uncle Chael, Elliot from Sheridan, Oregon here. Thank you for your amazing content. You know what? I know one Elliot in the small town of Sheridan. I bet it's you. What an interesting world that you found me over here. Nice to hear from you, Elliot, or nice to meet you in case you're another Elliot. For the rest of you, from West Lynn to around the world, I will be back for everybody's favorite podcast. I'm Chael Sonnen. See you Tuesday. You're welcome.